Welcome to CUCC's Sermons for Everyone. No matter who you are or where you find yourself on life's journey, we're glad you've tuned in, and we hope you find meaning in this week's sermon. Well, this week I want to read an entire chapter for you. So let me set it up a little bit. Two weeks ago, we were introduced to Joshua. He was Moses' aide, and then after the death of Moses, Joshua became in charge. God called him to lead. It was some big shoes to fill, some heavy weight and expectations squarely on his shoulders. But in the very beginning of the book, God calls out to Joshua three times and says, be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. And then one more time, be strong and courageous. All the while, God promising to Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you. So now Joshua is the leader and it's go time. They're told it's time to cross the Jordan River and to step into the promised land. But how exactly does one cross a Jordan River? How exactly does one go about conquering a promised land? Isn't that the challenge of any leader? taking the flowery visions and words and, and bringing them down to earth, actually doing something about them. So what does Joshua do? do? What does he do? He pulls an old trick out of the bag. In fact, it's a lesson he learned from Moses the last time they were this close to the promised land. Maybe you remember it from our Pride Sunday in the Memorial Garden Moses sent 12 spies into the promised land, and among many things, they brought back some really big grapes. And if you have a really good memory, you might remember that Joshua was, in fact, one of those 12 spies who Moses sent out. So Joshua's first official act as leader was to send some spies out to get a lay of the land and to come report back on what they found. Hear now a reading from Joshua chapter 2. Joshua, the son of Nun, secretly spent, sent two men as spies. He said, go, look over the land, especially Jericho. They set out and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab. They bedded down there. Some told the king of Jericho, men from the Israelites have come here tonight to spy on the land. So the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, send out the men who came to you, the ones who came to your house, because they have come to spy on the entire land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. Then she said, of course the men came to me, but I didn't know where they came from. The men left when it was time to close the gates at dark. But I don't know where they went. Hurry, chase after them. You might catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the flax stalks that she had laid out on the roof. The men from Jericho chased after them in the direction of the Jordan all the way up to the fords. As soon as those chasing them went out, the gate was shut behind them. Now before the, the spies bedded down, Rahab went up to them on the roof. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Terror over you has overwhelmed us. 
the entire population of the land has melted down in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea in front of you when you left Egypt. We've also heard what you did in Shion and Og to the two kings of the Amorites on the other side of the Jordan River. You utterly wiped them out. We heard this and our hearts turned to water. Because of you, people can no longer wake up, work up the courage. This is because the Lord your God is heaven, is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now that I've been loyal to you, so pledge to me that the Lord, pledge by the Lord that you will in turn deal loyally and faithfully with my family. Give me a sign of good faith. Spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, and sisters, along with everything they own. Rescue us from death. The men said to her, we swear by our own lives to secure yours. If you don't reveal our mission, we will deal loyally, with, loyally and faithfully with you when the Lord gives us the land. So she lowered the spies on a rope through the window. Her house was on the outer side of the city wall and she, she actually lived inside the wall. Then she said to them, go towards the highlands so that those chasing you don't run into you. Hide there for three days until those chasing you return. Then you may go on your way. The men said to her, we won't be responsible for this pledge you made us swear unless when we come into the land, you tie this red woven cord in the window through which you lowered us. Gather your father, your mother, your brothers, your whole family into the house with you. Those who go outside the doors of your house into the streets will have only themselves to blame for their own death. We won't be responsible. If anyone lays hands on those who are with you in the house, we will take blame for their deaths. But if you reveal our mission, we won't be responsible for this pledge you made us swear. She said, these things will happen just as you said. She sent them away and they went off. She tied the red cord in the window. The spies went out and entered the highlands. They stayed there for three days until those chasing them came back. Those chasing them had searched all along the road but never found them. Then the two men came back down from the highlands. They crossed the Jordan River and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. They told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, the Lord has definitely given the entire land into our power. In addition, all of the land's population has melted down in fear because of us. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now that's a story, right? There's so many things we could do with this story, so many details we could zoom in on, so many characters that we could search for ourselves within. And truth be told, I had great plans for this week, for this story, for this sermon. However, the more commentaries that I read and preachers that I bumped into, the more frustrated I became with the typical handling of this text. It became clear to me that there is a greater conversation to be had, even greater than the contents of the story itself. So 
I have scrapped my plans, and instead I'm going to get up on a soapbox and rant for a while about the subtle yet destructive ways that people have mishandled stories like this. All right, so you've all received a fair trigger warning. Let's go. So there's a line, a line often used by preachers and teachers when dealing with stories like this one. It's a line that comes up when we encounter unlikely heroes, right, such as Rahab. It goes something like this. God, in God's infinite wisdom and goodness, chose to use an unlikely hero, such as fill in the blank, Rahab, to demonstrate God's power and remind us that God can use anyone to accomplish great things. It sounds nice, inspiring even, right? If God can use someone like Rahab, God can definitely use me. Right, what's wrong with that? The problem is, and my rant shall begin now, what is it that makes Rahab such an unlikely hero? Is there something objectively less hero-like about her? How do you think being awarded least likely to be a hero makes her feel? And why does her position in the text need to be justified by God proving a point about God's own power? And if she is, in fact, an unlikely hero, what do we think likely heroes look like? Right, if one was to read the Bible from beginning to end, what image might they construct of a likely hero? What sort of people does God use on a regular basis to save the day, to lead the church, to offer spiritual wisdom and guidance? If, if Rahab is such an unlikely hero, what do likely heroes look like? Would Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob be more likely heroes? How about Samuel, David, or Solomon, or maybe one of the 42 other kings? Maybe Ezra, Nehemiah, Job, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. I'm going to go through the whole Bible, so bear with me. <laughs> Daniel, his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and maybe Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. How about Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah? Maybe Malachi, or maybe some New Testament heroes like Matthew, Mark, Luke, people you'd name closets after. <laughs> maybe Peter, James, John, how about Paul, Timothy, Silas? All of those sound like really great heroes to me. Those sound like the type of people that God would use on a regular basis to save the day, to lead the church. Are you starting to get where I'm going with this? And after reading that long list of amazing men in the Bible, how cute is it? How cute is it that every so often God chooses to use unlikely people like Rahab and Ruth and Esther? I mean, they're so unlikely, so unlikely to be participating contributors to a narrative. How great is it? How great is it that God in God's infinite wisdom and goodness lets them, unlikely little them, play a role in the story. I mean, it's so cute. It's so cute and unlikely. 
And preachers and teachers, they feed this monster. One title I came across for a sermon about Rahab was Rahab, from the house of shame to the hall of fame. Well, looking over a children's translation of this text, one translation, which is a pretty loose term nowadays, started the chapter like this. There was a woman in Jericho called Rahab. She had done a lot of bad things, but had heard about God and put her trust in God. Why? Right, and why did the original author and subsequent editors feel the need to include the detail about Rahab being a prostitute? It doesn't progress the narrative at all. Abraham lends his wife to Pharaoh, takes his wife's maid to be with him, then later exiles her and her son in the desert to die. Abraham had done a lot of bad things. And yet we still refer to him as the father of faith. Jacob steals from his brother, runs away, takes two wives, but they're not enough, so he also takes their maids. Jacob did a lot of bad things, and yet we call him Israel, father of nations. Don't even get me started on Solomon, who had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and we call him the wisest man who ever lived. Does not sound very wise to me. And yet we cast Rahab as some blonde temptress who's worthless, except for the one time she's able to to help the plot along a little bit. It's like preachers and teachers need to appeal to the fragility of men or their own subconscious bias by, by downplaying. And at times just straight up demeaning the already minimal roles that women get in the Bible. It's like, I, I know... You're not used to seeing a girl like Rahab in the story, but it's okay. God's only doing it to make a point. You see, to make sure everyone knows how great God is, sometimes God has to use a loser. Don't worry, it's not going to happen often, but every so often, every now and then, God needs needs to show that God can even use a Canaanite prostitute to advance the plot of his militaristic conquest of the Canaan Valley. I gave you a fair warning, I wasn't holding back this week. Yes, preachers so often do a disservice to the female characters in our Bible, but the truth is our Bible doesn't do itself many favors either. Reverend Lindsay Hardin Freeman led a three-year study of the Bible's new Revised Standard Version, the version in your pews. And together, they counted every single word spoken by females. Along with their dedicated team, they found that only 93 women have speaking roles in the Bible, and only 49 of them had names. To put that in perspective, there are over 3,000 named characters in the Bible. Now, not only did they find a minuscule number of women were given speaking roles in the Bible, they also realized how short their dialogues were. Altogether, every last one of them, women speak a grand total of 14,056 words in the Bible. Again, to put that in a context, I did a word search. I went back to the book of Deuteronomy and discovered that Moses offers more than 14,000 words in a single 
long-winded speech. Their painstaking study revealed that Mary, the mother of Jesus, speaks only 191 words. Well, Mary Magdalene, only 61. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, is attributed with 141 words. And Eve, maybe the most famous woman in the Bible, only speaks 74 words. The unknown Samaritan, unnamed Samaritan woman who speaks to Jesus at the well. It's the longest recorded conversation anyone has with Jesus. And even her, she is only offered 151 words. And today's unlikely uh, hero, Rahab, shockingly is credited with 256 words in one chapter. So let's get one thing straight. Is Rahab an unlikely hero in the Bible? Absolutely. If you were to read the Bible from start to finish, you would be surprised to see someone like Rahab speaking, let alone progressing the narrative. Rahab is an unlikely hero to us, and the reason is the Bible has an obvious bias towards men. She's an unlikely hero to to us because the Bible casts men in important roles at a rate of 1,000 to 1 and then puts a word count limit on the women who do get roles. I know that's a strong statement to make, but I also think it's true. And I think it's worth saying. I grew up reading the Bible. I grew up on stories of God using patriarchs, prophets, priests, and kings to save the day. God sending his son to save the world and leaving 12 disciple dudes in charge of everything from that point on. It's no surprise I find myself in a speaking role today. It's no surprise that I've never struggled to imagine myself as hero, as leader. Now I want, I need to make something else abundantly clear. Well, I do believe that there is a gender bias layered throughout the Bible, I do not for one second think that God shares that gender bias. Right? It's important to say hear it because it, it is of ultimate importance. I do not think that God shares the gender bias that permeates throughout the Bible. I believe in a God who is inclusive, loving, affirming, uplifting, empowering of everyone, 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 everyone. I simply believe that many of the contributing authors to the Bible lived in patriarchal societies. And whether recognized or not, whether intentional or not, their inherited gender bias shaped the stories that were told and retold. It shaped the characters that were named and left unnamed, and it shapes our image of what a biblical hero looks like. Does this make God any less loving or the Bible any less true? Of course not. But it does demand of us, the readers and the interpreters of the Bible, to take serious the task at hand to take serious the task of naming, owning, and uncovering our own biases, as well as those of the church, our sacred text, the giants of the faith who came before us and with whom we're intimately connected. 
Whether it's in our sacred texts, our Sunday sermons, or secular stories that we've come to know and love, we have to become keenly aware of the biases and the undertones. This is too good, or I guess too bad, not to share. So my four-year-old, Anna, she gets stuck on movies. She'll watch the same movie over and over and over until she's done with it. And recently, she's got a thing for this Disney classic, The Sword in the Stone. Know it? All right, so two weeks ago, it really happened. Two weeks ago, when I was writing this sermon for the first time, Anna asked me if we could watch it again. And so while I'm fumbling through Disney Plus to fire it up, she goes on to get me caught up in the plot. She says, Dad, the sword is really stuck, and whoever pulls it out gets to be king. Now, like I said, I had already been written, written much of the sermon at that point, so I responded, or queen, right? What if a girl pulls the sword out? And Anna laughs to herself. Julia overheard all this. She laughs to herself and says, Dad, there's no girls in the movie. The only girl is a witch. And then she continues to chuckle as if I should have known better. Right, Dad, there's no girls in the movie. The only girl is a witch. We have to do better. Or we have to do better when reading these texts, when talking about these characters. This is the one that irked me. When inferring to know God's reason for a particular character's less likely appearance. We need to do better. I need to do better. I'm a product of a system that says you'd make a really great prophet, priest, or king. Right? You're a likely hero. You're the kind of guy that God regularly uses to accomplish good things. Friends, I need help uncovering the biases that I've internalized and truthfully benefited from. The promised land isn't much of a promise if it's not for everyone. Right? The good news isn't so good if it's not for everyone. Yes, Together, we are bound for the promised land. I do believe that's where God wants us, but we need to make darn sure that we are not leaving people behind, that we are not so involved in our own pursuit of promise that we step all over people to get there. So let's do better. Together, let's do better. Let's keep reading the Bible, all of it, but let's do so with open eyes. Elevating characters that don't always get elevated. Giving voice to characters that are not always given voice. Rant is over. Here's some takeaways from this morning's story. Rahab was a hero. She was a hero who risked her life to save two foreigners. She was so in tune with the spirit of God that she recognized what was coming and she bound herself to it. She was cunning, intelligent, and brave. And without giving away the rest of the story, her quick thinking and courage is going to save the lives of her entire family. Right? And it's going to set in motion a family of heroes. 
Her son, Boaz, marries Ruth. And I cannot wait until we get to the story of Ruth. And then her, her great, 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 a couple more greats, great-grandson, Jesus, was, was also kind of a big deal. Rahab exists. Thanks be to God for Rahab. Thanks be to God for her witness, her strength, and her story this morning. Amen.